You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, if you would. Nehemiah, go to the Psalms and kind of go backwards a little bit. You'll find Nehemiah. Um, We are going to be in a couple different places today in the Scripture, but Nehemiah is where I'm going to really focus. So if you're in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, that would be a good place to put your bulletin as I tell you to turn to other places, okay? So, um, this is kind of an introduction, if you will. I want to talk to you as a congregation about the importance of God's Word in our worship. So, I want to talk about God's Word, but I want to talk about worship. Um, Worship has a lot of different uh, meanings to people. And I think probably the most common meaning today is worship. We think of it as being music, basically. You know, worship service and and so forth and so on. Um, I want to dismantle that idea. Uh, It's a part of our worship, but it's only a part. And there are other parts to it. But everything is prefaced on the Word. Everything is based in the Word. And... Um, I really appreciate uh, Tracy's selection of music today. It helped us to focus on the Word. And here at Beacon of Hope, we do what's called expository preaching. And in its simplest definition, expository preaching takes a text from the Bible and explains it so that those who are listening can understand what the Bible is saying. Uh, There are a multitude of things that go into explanations, such as presenting the historical background. That's part of expository preaching. Uh, Insights that are gained through grammatical analysis. What do the words mean and how are they put together? Um, Relating how the context of the text relates to its immediate context, as well as its place in the book in which it's found, and also in relationship to the rest of the Bible. So context. That is part of expository preaching. And at its best, expository preaching is basically the presentation of biblical truth derived from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, spirit-guided study of a passage. Within its context, which the Holy Spirit applies first to the life of me, your preacher, and then to the congregation that's listening, whether it be here or out there in internet world. Using that simple definition of expository preaching stops a multitude of other ways of handling texts of Scripture or preaching, or what goes for preaching today, because there are many preachers who do not do expository preaching. Expository preaching is not a matter of making the text relevant to the preacher's own culture or time in history, and it's not even how the text can be applied to the listener's life. Now, each of those elements do come about in expository preaching, but when they usurp the simple idea of explaining what the text means, then the expository sermon has turned into something else altogether. Um, I'm sure if you've traveled around and gone to various churches, different churches, there are some churches that are so bent on trying to make things contemporary 
and, and relatable to the audience that they've completely left the scriptural text. Um, there are sermons that are preached off of videos nowadays, a little video clip and then a short sermonette. I call them sermonettes. Um, but that is not necessarily an exposition of the scripture. Expository preaching is in its simplest form the opening up of a text and telling the listener what it means. Now, the fact that a biblical exposition must be based on a text from the Bible is nothing more than admission of, adherence to, and the fact that, get this, the Bible, the Bible, not the preacher, the Bible is the only authority a preacher has from which to speak. The Bible, the Word of God, is the only authority that I have from which to speak. The preacher's opinions, advice, and even exhortations, if they merely derive from his own thinking, carry absolutely no authority whatsoever. Preachers today have no authority for preaching their own notions and opinions, and they must preach the word, the apostolic word recorded in the scriptures. And whenever preachers depart from that purpose and the intent of the biblical portion... To that extent, they lose their authority to preach authoritatively. In the short and purpose of reading, explaining, and applying a portion of Scripture is to obey the command, preach the word. Um, my wife bought me a ring when I graduated from seminary, and I love this ring. And on it, it's got inscribed 1 Timothy 4.2, excuse me, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Preach the word. And I strive to do that. Now you say, well, Lynetti, you haven't even gone to a text yet. <laughs> Correct. Correct. That's not lost on me. I'm giving you an introduction. This is part of it. And believe me, we've got a little bit further to go before we get to brass tacks here. Now the book of Nehemiah provides one example of expository preaching that displays the simple definition that I just gave you. After the Babylonian captivity, remember 70 years Israel was in captivity, Israel is finally back in their country and in Jerusalem, the city of the temple. And under the courageous leadership of Nehemiah, the people were working to restore the city to its former glory. He was working on the walls that surrounded the city. Ezra the book before Nehemiah, Ezra, a scribe and a priest who was fully committed to studying the Bible, practicing it in his life, and teaching it, according to Ezra 7.10. That was, that was his job description, if you will. He studied the Bible, he practiced it, and then he taught it. He was called upon by Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8. He was called by Nehemiah to preach to the people. Nehemiah was kind of like a government official. He was a governor. And uh, so he knew his lane. He knew he shouldn't get out of his lane, even though he was a spiritual man, obviously. But when it came to the reading of the law, he called on Ezra the priest. And it was during the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles in the seventh month that Ezra, together with over 15 of his choice men and then some Levites, that they preached to the people. And the Bible says something very interesting. Turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. 
and I want you to look at verse 8. We're going to return to this in depth uh, over the next few weeks, but we just want to see it right now. Nehemiah 8.8, it says, They, okay, that's Ezra and the Levites, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So here you have Ezra and the Levites, the priests, reading from the book of the law of God, that would be the Torah, okay, translating it to give the sense of it, and also the intention was so that the listeners would understand it, kind of like just what I said expository preaching is, right? So it says that they, they read the word of God and translated it, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, giving the sense. This is, in essence, expository preaching. Now, I'm going to focus on the text of Nehemiah 8, 1 through 10 today when I get to it. But you've got to have background first. Otherwise, it's kind of like parachuting into enemy territory, and you don't even know who your enemy is and where you're supposed to go or anything like that. You've got to have background first, right? So today, I'm going to work towards Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8, because in it, we see how God's people were literally transformed to worship through the Word of God. And I guess that's really what I want to talk about in the ensuing weeks here, is, is how the Word of God can literally transform us and make us sincere worshipers of our great God. So, it's going to take us a little while, as I said, before we get to Nehemiah 8, because there are some important things. But let me just read the first chapter to you very quickly here, uh, verses 1 through 8, so you know where we're going. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. And the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men, women, and those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. Praise God. There's our first pulpit, right? Okay? Now drop down verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, And when he opened it, all the people stood up. You know, in Europe, I've been in a lot of the churches in Europe, cathedrals actually, and they have these, they have these pulpits. And you walk into the pulpit, you walk up the steps. Sometimes it's a circular stairway, other times it's just a set of stairs. And I am not above you. I'm almost equal with you guys right here, you know, on level. In in those places, you are above. And that was to get something across to people, and it didn't have anything to do with the preacher, had everything to do with the Word of God. 
So Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Down in verse 8, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Let's pray. Father, as we break into this idea of the impact of your word upon the souls of listeners, we just thank you that we have your word in totality. Everything that we need is contained. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, you have given us all that we need for our faith and for our life to be lived as believers in you and worshipers of you. And we are grateful, Lord, that we have this Bible. And Father, help us to give it the high place that it deserves. But Lord, maybe even more so, would you, would you do a transformation in our hearts through these sermons, through the reading of the Word of God, and the hearing and the understanding of the Word of God, would you transform us and make us even more into the image of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to talk about the setting and time of the account that we're going into in chapter 8 here. Nehemiah tells a story of the returnees from the Babylonian captivity. Now first, Nehemiah set out to restore the walls. And you see that in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. Okay, the temple had already been restored. And I'm going to give you dates and I'm going to have you turning to text. So this is kind of pedantic. This is kind of teachy. Okay, but it's important for you to understand. So an outline for Nehemiah would be chapters 1 through 6 show him restoring the walls. And then chapters 7 through 13 show him restoring the people. Restoring the people. So... Why did the walls and the people of Israel need to be restored? Well, the story goes all the way back to a promise in Deuteronomy 28. God made this promise to his people Israel in Deuteronomy 28. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll judge you and cause you to be taken into captivity. Very simple. Obey, be blessed. Disobey, be cursed. And that theme carries through. This promise was repeated to King Solomon, jumping way ahead. And here's the first place I want you to turn to is 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. And this is where, where God reiterates that promise from Deuteronomy 28 to King Solomon. Now, this is a very, very important Command here. Now, it came about in verse 1 of chapter 9, 1 Kings, 1 Kings 9 1. Now, it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, the temple, and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to Solomon, He said, I, I've heard your prayers. 
and your supplication, which you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house, which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. The temple is very, very important, right? That's where God resided. And verse, and verse 4 says, as for you, here it is, as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of your heart and uprightness doing according to all that I have commanded you and, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then, and you could circle that if, and you could circle that then, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Verse 6, but if, you can circle that, but if you and your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandment and my statutes, which I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then, circle it, okay, if, then, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins and everyone who passes by will be astonished. And they'll hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity onto them. And so you have that promise, if you obey, you'll be blessed, and if you disobey, you will not be blessed. But Solomon sinned against God. He had very, very many foreign alliances and the way those foreign alliances were made were through marriages. So he had a boatload of wives. And they were, many of them, foreign women. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings, and I want you to go to chapter 12. Okay? And here, we're going to see what happened. This is after Solomon dies. At the end of verse, uh, chapter 11, it says the death of Solomon, verses 41 through 43. And then this is what happens here. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had uh, fled from the presence of King Solomon. And then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam, and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Now this is a plea from the people to the kings, because you, you've got a king that you're applying to, and they're saying, listen, Solomon really laid heavy taxes on us, heavy burdens on us, and we're asking you, back off. 
give, now, now that you're king, Jeroboam, now that you're king, back off. Help us a little bit. And verse 5 says, Then he said to them, Well, depart for three days and return to me. And so they departed. He wanted to think about what they had to say. So King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these people? So he wisely goes to the OGs. He goes to the guys that were around who knew the history. They were the elders. They served together with Solomon. And he's a younger man. He's applying to them for wisdom. And and they spoke to him and they said, listen, if you're going to be a good servant to these people today, verse 7, and you're going to serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they'll be your servants forever. You'll have them in the palm of your hand, and you'll be able to reign greatly. But, but, he forsook, Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and he went and talked with the young men who grew up with him and and served him. So instead of listening to what the elders had to say, he goes to his peers, okay, the guys that he grew up with. And he says to them, what counsel do you give to me that I can answer this people with who have spoken to me saying, lighten the load which your father put upon us. And the young man who grew up with him spoke to him saying, thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you saying, quote, your father made a, our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. This is their advice. You shall speak to them saying, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. <laughs> this is heavy. Whereas my father loaded you with heavy yoke, I'll add to your yoke, and my father disciplined you with whips, I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. Okay, this is what the younger men told him to say. So then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam, and third day, just as the king had asked, and verse 13, the king answered the people harshly. So he took the advice of the young ones, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips but I will discipline you as scorpions. And so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord. He turned from the Lord. Now, why am I relaying all this? Because this is right where the kingdom, which had its glory days under David and Solomon, divided. This is when it divided. And ten tribes stayed in the north, Okay, and two tribes were in the south. Now, there were other extenuating circumstances that they didn't get along with each other very well. goes back a long ways. But the truth of the matter is, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin were in the south, and they were originally ruled by Rehoboam. Rehoboam took the throne after Solomon's death and did a foolish thing. He listened to his peers. But... When he brought that news to those people, the kingdom split. It's very, very important because over the years then, both kingdoms proved unfaithful to Yahweh. The northern kingdom was judged by God and taken away by the Assyrians in 722 
B.C. The Northern Kingdom. And I'll do a diagram next week for you because it's important for us to understand this and people get really confused. They say, well, Israel is the Jews, right? Yes. <laughs> but it's also the Northern Kingdom. That's, that was called Israel. And then you had Judah, which is the Southern Kingdom, and that's where Jerusalem is in the temple. And they're not getting along with each other. It's split now, okay? And they sinned so grievously, and not without warning, because God sent his prophets to the northern kingdom and told them, listen, you need to repent, stop worshiping false gods, or God is going to carry you away. And sure enough, he did. In 722, the Assyrians came and completely decimated them. After years of Assyrian aggression, the southern kingdom also fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., okay? So you got both these kingdoms. One got carried away by the Assyrians and enculturated into the Assyrian population, the ten tribes. And then you've got the two in the south that get taken over by the Babylonians. And the Israelites of the northern kingdom were absorbed into Assyria and eventually into their cultures. But the ones in the southern kingdom that got carried away to Babylon for the 70-year captivity, those two tribes, they remained intact. They didn't lose their way, even though they were in a foreign land and they had to speak a foreign language. Now, they lost some of their Jewishness over those 70 years, but they retained their identity So, after Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians, 539 B.C., there was at least three returns, and the first resulted in the building of the tabernacle, or the temple again in 516 B.C. Okay, this is after the Babylonian captivity. There were three returns, and the first one under Zerubbabel took place, and he built the temple again. But the city was still in disarray. And he found that the people had sinned grievously and had married many of the uh, nations around them. They had wives from the nations around them. And Zerubbabel and Ezra, who was a second set of returnees, they had to deal with all this riffraff that Israel had become in Judah. So the three returns from exile to Judah, the southern kingdom, because the north is just kind of gone. One was in 538 B.C. under Zerubbabel, and he built the temple, 516. Eighty years later, in 458 B.C., Ezra brought people back, and he was really intent. He was a priest. He was really intent on helping the people be transformed and, and see them Uh, living uh, more in line with God's word, and he had them separate from their foreign wives. It's just a a marvelous book, read Ezra. And then 14 years later, in 444 B.C., Nehemiah returned with a group of people. And that's where he built the walls. That's almost 100 years from the first return under Zerubbabel to the return under Nehemiah. Can I just say, God's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. And I, I've talked to you before about this, that his times are not our times, and our times are way faster than him. A hundred years. I mean, 
if I were God, right, I'd do it all under Zerubbabel. Babylonian captivity is over. Time to get down to business. Build the temple, start worshiping. Everybody transformed. Let's go. 100 years of process. Do you ever feel like you're behind in your sanctification? Ever feel like you should be further along by now? Everybody should go, yeah. Yeah. You know you're right where you're supposed to be. And God is not done with you yet. You're on the escalator going up. He's working on you. And you're guaranteed a place in heaven. But it's process. And God doesn't work as fast as we think he should often. When God does a work, his providence is often And I I might even go as far to say typically longer than we might anticipate. God was working toward revival in the hearts of the people cohesively. And it came during Nehemiah's time almost 100 years after the first wave of returnees. The temple had been rebuilt in 516, but the walls surrounding the city lay in ruins 70 years later. And the people... We're in a state of great distress when Nehemiah arrived in 444 B.C. You see, they had intermarried with the unbelieving people that surrounded them. They were following their ungodly ways. They were worshiping idols, the very thing that they were sent away to Babylon and in punishment. And Ezra's ministry had turned some away from their idolatry, but it was under Nehemiah's ministry that there was a true transformation through sincere worship under the sound of God's word. Fourteen years after Ezra returned. Now, that's another little time nugget, okay? It didn't happen the first two months after Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem. It was 14 years after he returned, and the walls were already rebuilt, that he said, Ezra, I'd like you to read God's word in celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's, as, uh, that's Nehemiah 8. That's where we get to. Now, the restoration of the people in 7 through 13, that's where we find chapter 8, right in that, that section. I want to focus on the restoration or the transformation of the people in a general way today, and then we'll get more deep into this in the weeks to come. But the first thing that I want to talk about is the people's state of heart. So you've got to go to the very first chapter of Nehemiah because that's where we find out where they were when Nehemiah first gets back. Chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakliah. Now it happened in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, And some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem, that holy city, right? They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress, and the reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so we see that the people were in great distress. Now, the word used here for distress is the same word that we see identifying Nehemiah's sad face because shortly he's going to go before the king. He's a cupbearer, and he's going to go before the king, and the king says, oh, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? 
in your face? Why does your countenance look the way it is? It's the same word. He was in distress. He was in great distress, even as the people were. It represents a state of anxiety, and and some might even say that the people were in in great distress because of their enemies, because the walls were knocked down. They, they, They were in a state of insecurity. Their enemies could come in on them at any time. Others have suggested that they were facing famine due to the enemies possessing their fields. They had enemies surrounding them, not not unlike today. Israel has always been surrounded by enemies. And they're just a little, little country. And they've always had enemies surrounding them. And at this time, because the walls were knocked down, they were insecure in their city, Jerusalem, but their fields outside the city of Jerusalem were also being possessed by their enemies, and so they were actually suffering from famine. And that led to them begging food from other Jews who had food, and they were charging them outrageous usury taxes. And so Nehemiah had to deal with that. This this is a mess. They're in a mess. Others, well, there's just a lot of reasons for their distress. Suffice it to say, they're in great distress. And I want to say something. That when you really consider things, like turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. This is why they're in distress. They were sinning. They were sinning. It always comes back to sin, doesn't it? When they heard the law read, they responded in repentance and they confessed. Look at verse verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled, assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them, and the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners. That's important because they were misleading them and leading them to worship other gods. They separated from all the foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth of the day, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Sin. Sorrow always accompanies sin. Have you not found that to be true in your life? Sorrow always accompanies sin. Secondly, in chapter 1, we see they're not only in great distress, they were also under great reproach. The people were under great reproach, and now we go back to Solomon's warning, or God's warning to Solomon, and all the way back to Deuteronomy. But if your sons indeed turn away from following me and don't keep my commandments and my statutes which I set before you and go on serve other gods and worship them, then I'm going to cut off Israel from the land of which I have given them. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword. That's exactly what they had become. With their walls knocked down, the people themselves were ridiculed by those outside of them. Not only would they be uprooted from the land, the land which was ravished by enemies, but they would themselves be despised and looked down upon by the nations around them. And I'll tell you, it's just amazing. uh, Over in Nehemiah 4, (laughs) you see what kind of derision they were held in. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry. This is one of the enemies 
that they had, and he mocked the Jews, and, and he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, and he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even um, the burned ones? And now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him, and he said this, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. That's what they're facing. So they're under heavy derision. Why? Because of their sin. Insecurity always accompanies sin. Sorrow and insecurity. You know, there's pleasures of sin for a season. But there's always sorrow and insecurity that accompanies sin. And Israel was facing that. Now, Nehemiah's state of heart. This is lovely. This is again from chapter 1. And I'll just read just a couple of verses here, 4 through 11. Well, if you just look at them, it says that he, verse 4, And when I heard these words, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I, and I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ears now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night. And on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house. He wept and mourned for days, he prayed, he confessed his sin, the sins of the people, and the sins of their fathers in the past, and he remembered God's promise to Solomon, and he claimed in verses 8 and 9, he claimed it, verses 8 and 9 say this, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will I, uh, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will uh, gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. He's praying for people he didn't even meet yet. Okay? These are the people that were in Judah... He just got a report of their state, and they're, they're in, in sorry, sorry shape. And he goes to prayer for days, and he mourns for days for somebody else. For somebody else. Wow. How are we doing on that? He courageously went before the king then in verses 10 and 11. He not only mourned and prayed for days, but he eventually courageously went before the king and asked for help in verses 10 and 11 of chapter, chapter 1. Then your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And then verse 2, it says, And it came about 
in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That wine was before him, and I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been in his presence. And so the king said to me, why is your face sad? Why are you distressed, Nehemiah, though you're not sick? And this is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when my city and the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? So he goes before the king and he says, listen, where I come from in Babylon, or excuse me, in Jerusalem, in Judah, he was in Babylon before the king. He says, it's in disarray, and he asks to go back, and that's how he got back there. And that really kind of precedes everything I want to say, so turn to chapter 8 now. I told you it'd take a while, but I'm not going to go verse by verse in chapter 8. The first thing I want to show you here is the impact of God's word and, and how it comes to impact people. Number one, everybody attended, verses 1 and 2. Everybody, men, women, and those that could understand. Another word for children, okay? Those that could understand. It starts out with the fact that all people gathered together in unity as one man. I think Nehemiah and Ezra had been working with them going, listen, the temple's here, the walls are finished, we need to repent. We cannot have what happened to us before because of our sin happened to us again. And I think they got through to the people because they responded. Now, the estimation is between 50 to maybe 80,000 people were gathered. This is no small gathering, folks. I'll get to that in a minute. But they all came and they were intent because they wanted to listen with understanding, which means that they had to be able to comprehend things. They must have a huge nursery program. That's all I can think of. <laughs> Nursery's on my mind. You know, Jordan mentioned we need able-bodied women, and he said, if you love working with kids, hogwash. I don't care if you love working with kids or not. We need people that can go into the nursery and help us, okay? I I think I'm going to get Emma one of these days to just bring all the kids up here, and then I'm going to have the nurseries pour out too, and we're going to have them all stand here, and I'll I'll show you why. We're, We're being as kind as we can, saying, please, if you have any... Any, if you're healthy and you can have an able body, could you go help? Hogwash. Let's, let's get all the kids up here and you'll see what we're facing. Watch the ladies leave the nursery. I heard one over, I overheard one say to Mary the other day, there are 16 in here today. I think that was babies. Wow. Anyways, so this is all of them. As one, they want to hear. And then secondly, inconvenience is not an acceptable hindrance to not hear the word of God. In verse 3, look at what it says. He read it, the word of God from them, in the square which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women who, and those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Well, there are at least two inconveniences that come out in this verse, to me anyways, and when is time? When is time? He read from early light until midday. That means from dawn, from when light comes to noon. 
That is six hours, okay? Six hours of reading. There'll never be a spiritual transformation in the life if there are things that detour you from reading or hearing the word of God. These people were not afraid to get up that early and stay put until noon to hear the word of God. Are we willing to get up before the rest of the house to go before the Lord, to listen to his word in the quiet time when everything is still? Or is that too much to ask? What will prevent us from transforming power and sincere worship of God. I knew a man once that I was discipling many years ago, and he was a businessman, very, 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 very aggressive businessman. And I was trying to, he was, he was struggling a little bit, and I was trying to help him get into a set routine of, of worship in the morning, uh, devotions, if you will, reading the word and prayer. And I knew that he was just like crazy busy, and I said, let's start with just 15 minutes, okay? And I was thinking maybe give him daily bread or some little devotional to read just to get the ball rolling. He said, I can't do that. I said, what? <laughs> I was totally flabbergasted. I said, what? You can't do 15 minutes? He said, no. He said, I get up at 5 o'clock, I work out for this amount of time, then I have breakfast, then I shower. And I, I said, 15 minutes, huh? And I, I worked with him a little bit. He was unable to put aside the amount of time. And when he finally came down to it, he could only afford seven minutes. I mean, I think I kept a straight face that whole time, but wow, seven minutes for God. God numbers our days, and he allows the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. And he's a creator of the entire universe and everything in it. And do we only have seven minutes for him? Really? Really? These people stood, okay, for six hours and listened to the word of God. Second, the second hindrance that I see in that simple little verse is discomfort. They were in the sun. Sound like Joe Biden. They were in the sun. (laughs) (laughs) They were in the sun because they were out. It wasn't covered. They weren't in a temple. And they stood there with the kids. People, there's much to be learned here. They're in before the square, which is in front of the water gate. It's estimated that there could have been between 30 to 50 people. I'm sorry, I misquoted that before. If you look at uh, chapter 7, verses 66 and 67, it gives you some numbers there. So that's where we get the idea that it could have been 30 to 50,000 people. And they're out in the open, uncovered, in intense heat. So it was hot. In 9.3, Nehemiah 9.3, we get the idea of how things went. It says they did a reading from the law for a quarter of the day. That would be three hours. And then confession and worship for another quarter of the day. That's three more hours. They were very serious, very intentional. And they had respect for the word of God because they stood when the word of God was read. Now, I know there are churches that they've made it almost law that when you read the word of God, you must stand. There is nothing in the scripture that prescribes that we must stand. There are examples of people standing at the word of God, which is one that I just read you in Nehemiah 8, but it is not prescribed. That is a description. 
In fact, in Jeremiah 36.15, Baruch, the servant of Jeremiah, sits down as he reads the scroll. So you need to be careful of these things. And also, if we're going to demand that everybody stand when they read the word and say, that's what they did in Jeremiah's, or in Nehemiah's day, well, okay, they also bowed with their face to the floor. How many of you are going to do that? We have different ways and forms of showing our worship. We bow our heads, we fold our hands, we close our eyes. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about what we teach our children. When we teach them, when they're very, very, come on, we're going to pray now. We fold our hands, and the little ones fold their hands. And we say, close your eyes and close your eyes. Bow your head, bow your head. Do we tell them why we would do that? Why did the people bow down with their face to the floor, to the ground? Why do we close our eyes and fold our hands and bow our head? Isn't it because of the majesty of who we're coming before? So much is done, and we get these little kids, and they're like robots, and they just do this stuff. They don't know why they do it. Do we? (laughs) Do we know why we do these things? There's so much here. You can tell where I'm going. I mean, this is just an introduction, folks. So there was respect for God's word manifest outwardly, verse 5. There was reverence for the word manifest vocally, Uh, They worshiped Yahweh, and all the people said, Amen, Amen. And there was humility before God. If you look at verse 6, they bowed all the way down. That's regard for the dignity of his person. And finally, they had the word of God explained to them. Legan Duncan once related that there's a little bit of a disagreement among Hebrew scholars here. What does it mean that they translated it? See, you've got to understand, they were in Babylon for 70 years. They lost their language, Hebrew. Okay? But Ezra didn't. Obviously, Nehemiah didn't. But the people on a general basis were speaking Aramaic. The whole book of Daniel, or a large part of Daniel, is written in Aramaic. Okay? And, and the thought is maybe their translation, these Levites that Ezra is out here sounding very spiritual and everything, reading in Hebrew, and the people are, duh. And so the Levites were going amongst this massive crowd and translating. Maybe they had them in groups, and they were translating, but they were also giving the meaning behind the words. They were reiterating and reestablishing these people into the people of God, which they were. But they had lost a lot. Now, There was transformation. It's very possible that this heartfelt worship came directly from the reading of the word of God. We find that there was intense emotion over their sin. The people were weeping. They were literally weeping as they heard. If you look in verses 9 through 12 of Nehemiah 8, the people were weeping, and that word means to moan, to mourn, to lament. And it's evidenced outwardly by tears that flow. They drop, great drops falling from the eyes. There was intense pain because they grieved as they listened to the word of God. It was like a gut punch. Aaron mentioned, you know, that was the first time when he heard his brother passed. You know, I've seen that when you bring bad news to somebody. And they double over. It's visceral, right? 
It's physically experienced. These people were physically experienced. You realize that when Whitfield used to preach, that people literally fell down weeping over their sin? And they began to quake? (laughs) Wow. When I get to heaven, I want a rerun of those sermons. I just want to hear them preach. The tenderness of the people. And, and see how it took Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, and the priest, and the Levites, all of them, to explain the law to the people to help the Jews in their humbled state and heart. And, and I just want to go to verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy, and don't be grieved now. They've repented. They've confessed their sin. And now Ezra, Nehemiah, and the priests are telling them, Settle down now. Settle down. All the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. And, you know, it's so interesting. It says that in verse 10 of chapter 8, then, uh, then he said to them, Go eat of the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Don't be grieved. It's done now. You've confessed. Don't sit and wallow. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what I want to close with. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, just as the nation of Israel, though back in the land after captivity, they still needed to repent. And we, as believers, though we're in Christ, we still need to repent. Luther said, I repent daily. It's not just a one-time thing. But once they had done, they needed to walk in the joy of the Lord. And that's a part we forget, don't we? Especially if we're caught up in a sin and we're battling with it. We don't rejoice in those moments of victory, though they be short. We need to rejoice, but we're always fearful. Oh, the boom's going to drop on me. The ogre God is going to hit me hard with his rod. Friends, I love that. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And, and all you have to do is go to Romans 8.1 to receive the joy of the Lord because he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be wallowing and mourning Yes, we have to confess when we do sin. Yes, we need to turn from that and repent from it, but then let that joy just radiate from you because you know you're forgiven. It's all based on a finished work that Jesus Christ did, which is a great segue into communion (laughs) because we're celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're remembering what he did for us.